So as we're continuing in our, our Reformation um, month here, um, I drew John Calvin, which, which is good other than the fact that you could spend probably a year just talking about, you know, the, the Reformed theology that um, John Calvin was part of. So I thought this morning is uh, try to give kind of an overview of his life, um, how he impacted the church, you know, in Geneva, um, how he was as a pastor, because, you know, you hear the name John Calvin and usually everybody thinks, oh, Calvinism, you know, good, bad, indifferent, whatever your view on that, that's usually the reaction from people. But um, he was a man of the word. Uh, he was a man, he was a preacher, pastor, you know, same duties as most preachers and pastors have. So a lot of that plays into, I think, his development of some of the Reformed theology. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can convey some of that here this morning. So what's, uh, it caught me kind of here a little bit, um, which was a good thing that Carson was going to share from uh, Ephesians, which that's what I was going to start with this morning. So... Read a little bit of scripture, we'll pray, and, and we'll get going here this morning. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Father, thank you for this morning could gather and worship. And as we review and talk about uh, the life of John Calvin, uh, maybe we remember that it was the Lord working through him. We're not here to celebrate or raise John Calvin to a, a new level or status, but to realize that the Lord worked through him as he did many of the other reformers that we've heard about this past month and that many of us read about. So, Lord, we pray that this morning is edifying and that it uh, is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Charles Spurgeon, um, in a sermon he did on 1 Corinthians 23 and 24 in February 1855, said this. This was part of a sermon. And I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless you preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. I have my own ideas on those, I always state boldly. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe that we preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, not unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor I think can we preach the gospel unless we base it on the particular redemption which Christ made for his elect and chosen people. Nor can I comprehend a gospel that lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having believed. So you can see that John Calvin had an impact even on Spurgeon. John Calvin was born July 10th, 1509 in the city of Noyon, or Noyon in the kingdom of France. And forgive me if I butcher any of these names. Um, his father, Gerald, uh, worked for the Catholic Church there locally. He dealt with legal and financial matters in, in the church. 
So he kind of had an in for his family there to, to, to work to get them um, into the church, get them educated and so forth. His mother, Janine LaFranc, she was a reputed beauty whose father was an innkeeper. Uh, she passed away when John was about five or six years old. Um, John had uh, two other brothers that re reached uh, maturity, uh, Charles and Anthony. His father remarried, uh, had two additional daughters. Uh, not much is known about the, the stepmother. Um, John remained close with his brothers and one of his half-sisters, Marie. Uh, they shared his commitment to the Protestant faith and then eventually joined him when he was in exile in Geneva. As far as John's conversion, um, there's no known date or details to that. Uh, in his uh, commentary on the Psalms, he wrote in the preface, preface to that, when I was yet a very little boy, my father had destined me to study, study of theology. But afterwards, when he considered that the legal profession commonly raised those who followed it to wealth, this prospect induced him suddenly to change his purpose. Thus it came to pass that I was withdrawn from the study of philosophy and was put into the study of law. To that pursuit, I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my father. But God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. And first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extricated from so profound an abyss of mire, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at, my, at an early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge for true goodness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that, all, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I pursued them with less vigor. So he talks about this sudden change in, in, in his, his writings. He um, talks about it, in the, in the word he used in Latin means suddenly, but could also mean unpremeditated. So he's saying this, you know, this change he had was sudden, um, you know, it's not, not sure, he doesn't write about, you know, what it was, if it may have been some person, some event, some crisis, some combination of those things, but he was suddenly changed by the Lord. As a young man, he found himself surrounded by many friends and fellow students who were studying the writings of Luther and other reformers. The spiritual and intellectual power of these arguments for reform of the church attracted them. Some of them were converting to the Protestant faith. Others remained Roman Catholic, hoping that they could change the system from within. <clears throat> Calvin, no doubt, came to know a great deal about the thought of the reformers and was probably persuaded that aspects of the Roman Catholic Church needed changing. <clears throat> During this time, Calvin's conversion coincided with the growing militancy in the Reformation movement in France. The militancy was clearly expressed in what became known, <clears throat> excuse me, came known as the affair of the placards or the affair of the posters. A Sunday morning in early 1534, posters appeared all over France proclaiming the need for reform in the church. One of these uh, posters was placed outside the bedroom door of King Francis I. He was not amused. From that point on, um, Many of the reformers were fleeing France to avoid arrest, and Calvin was among them. So for the next two years, Calvin was on the move. We've got a map here. So it may be a little hard to see, but um, you see Paris on there, uh, Noyon, where he was born, Strasbourg, 
Basel, Switzerland, Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, these are many of the places that uh, you'll hear here that uh, he ended up. So for the next two years, he was on the move. He was finally forced to flee France during the affair of the placards. In January 1535, he arrived in Basel, Switzerland. The city was under the influence of the reform movement. In March 1536, Calvin published the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. The work was a defense of the faith and statement of the doctoral position of the reformers. He also intended to serve as an element. Uh, he also, excuse me, intended it to serve as an elementary instruction book for anyone interested in the Christian faith. It was a small book at that time, six chapters. First chapter was on the law and the gospel, knowledge of sin and salvation. Second one on faith, specifically justification by faith alone. Third one on prayer, the importance of communication between the believer and God. The fourth and fifth chapters were on the true and false sacraments, biblical teaching on baptism and the Lord's Supper, denying the Roman Catholic teaching of those two sacraments and rejecting the other five rites that Rome taught. This last chapter was on Christian freedom, examining how the Christian is free in matters of religion and from all human invention and is bound only to the teaching of the Bible. Calvin's book lays down the most basic teaching of the Reformation in a remarkably clear way. Calvin had made clear that Christ, faith, justification, the sacraments, and the scriptures stood at the heart of his understanding of Christianity. Shortly after this publication, he left Basel for Ferrara, Italy, where he briefly served as secretary to Princess Renee of France, as she was uh, friendly to the reform movement. By June, he was back in Paris with his brother Antony. They were resolving their father's affairs. During that time, when he was in France, um, King Francis I issued an edict which gave a limited six-month period for heretics to reconcile to the Catholic faith. Calvin decided at that point there was no future for him in France. In August, he set off for Strasbourg, a free imperial city of the Holy Roman Empire and a refuge for reformers. Due to military maneuvers of imperial and French forces, he was forced to make a detour to the south, bringing him to Geneva. Calvin had intended to stay only a single night, but William Farrell, a fellow French reformer residing in the city, implored him to stay and asserted in him that his work of the Reformation, that there was work there for reforming the church. William Farrell was a redheaded, left-handed, and fiery preacher. His effective preaching convinced many Genevans to support the call of reform in the church. Yeah, likeness of them there. And I, I have two red-headed stepsons, and yes, they're fiery. Must <laughs> be something to that. 1535, a public debate was held at which defenders of the Roman Catholic Church debated preachers supporting them. The practice of public debate was always an advantage to the Protestants, who were much better educated in the Bible than the local priest. And, and I've seen this before, where <laughs> that was par part of the issue with the Roman Catholic Church is is some of the, the priests and, and local pastors from the Roman Catholic Church just did not know their Bibles. Soon the leaders in the government uh, declared that the city would become Protestant. As in other areas in Europe, Roman Catholicism was outlawed in Geneva. A successful reform of the church in Geneva had only occurred only a few months before Calvin arrived in the city. Farrell recognized that he did not have the skills to consolidate the reform in Geneva and to organize a new reformed church there. 
When he heard that young John Calvin was in the city, he thought this might, he might just be the man that the church needed. He knew of Calvin's institutes, admired not only its theology, but also its remarkable balance and organization. So Pharrell went to Calvin and appealed to him to stay in Geneva to help the young church. Calvin declined, saying he was headed to Strasbourg to study and write. Pharrell would not take no for an answer. Calvin wrote about this recollection, excuse me, recollection of the conversation with Pharaoh many years later in his preface to the Psalms commentary. Pharaoh detained me at Geneva, not so much by counsel and exhortation, but by a dreadful curse which I felt to be as if God had from heaven laid his mighty hand upon me to arrest me. He proceeded to utter the imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of my studies, which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to help when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so terror-struck that I gave up my journey I had undertaken. But sensible of my natural shyness and timid timidity, I would not tie myself to any particular office. So Calvin agreed to stay at that point. His first ministry in, in Geneva, in addition to the regular pastoral labors, Pharrell and Calvin also set to work drafting a church order that would guide and organize the life of the church. January 1537, just six months after Calvin entered the city, they presented their plan to the city council. Several important provisions were contained in these articles. <clears throat> in these articles, they called for the writing of a catechism to be used for the education of the young so they'd be well grounded in sound doctrine. They called for the preparation of a confession of faith that would summarize the doctrine of the church briefly and clearly that all citizens would accept. Pharrell and Calvin presented the draft of the Genevan Confession to the city council in November of 1536. The ministers wanted Geneva not to be a city of two or more competing religions, but one true biblical religion. Furthermore, the ministers wanted anyone who would not embrace the confession to be banished from the city. The, the ministers, including Calvin, clearly still had the medieval conception of the relation of the church and the state. The Christian church was interconnected and strongly support, and the Christian church and the city were strongly interconnected and should support one another. They believed the state ought to use its power to promote and protect true religion. The minister's ideal of one church enforced by a government was certainly not new, but they called for a level, a, a level of knowledge and commitment on the part of the people that had not really been seen or pursued by the medieval church. Of course, over time, there were some issues, as you could imagine. Uh, the city had no trouble uh, introducing the doctrine of uniformity for the city, but they were uncomfortable with the church having the authority to discipline its members. Calvin and other Genevan ministers insisted that spiritual discipline should be in the hands of the church. In 1538, the city adopted a motion of forbidding uh, the preachers to talk about politics from the pulpit. Another issue that uh, the Genevan ministers had an issue with was uh, a lot of the city wanted them to follow the practices that were being held in, in the Swiss city of Bern. Uh, minor, minor matters such as the kind of bread used in communion, use of baptismal, baptismal font, attire of the bride for a wedding, celebration of Christmas, Easter, Accession, and Pentecost. The Genevan ministers wanted none of these changes. Calvin thought that these differences between Bern and Geneva were important, yet he thought they should be settled by the church. Came to a crisis in Easter of 1538. The city was pushing them to 
filed the, the Burns practices, ministers rejected these actions. City responded immediately by banishing Farrell, Calvin, and another minister from the city. Calvin's first ex exile from France to Geneva came to an end with another exile from Geneva. He was 28 years old at this time, and he thought he was a, a pastoral failure at this point. Exiled from Geneva, Calvin decided to follow his original plan, the quiet life of scholarship in Strasbourg. Martin Bucer, the leading minister in Strasbourg, had a and a distinguished reformer saw in Calvin a future leader for reform with the great talent. He invited Calvin to become the pastor of the French refugee congregation in the German city speaking. When Calvin hesitated, Bucer used language similar to that employed by Pharrell two years earlier. <laughs> There's a pattern here with him, right? Bucer warned Calvin not to be a Jonah, running away from the call of the Lord. So Calvin again heard the voice of God in the thundering of his friends and took up pastoral responsibility in Strasbourg. I think, yeah, there's a likeness of Bucer there. There's life was demanding. His first year, he had so little income that he had to take on borders. The congregation was considered small, about 400 members. Where is he now, right? He preached about four times a week. In addition to his pastoral work, he found time to study and write. City council in Strasbourg allowed Calvin significant freedom to lead the life of the congregation as he saw best. Perhaps the language differences made it less of a concern for the city. Uh, Calvin wanted more frequent communion that was um, practiced in Strasbourg churches, so he introduced monthly communion. He was concerned about godly preparation for communion and required each communicant to speak to him before his or her, uh, speak to him about his or her spiritual condition before each communion. Later in Geneva, the elders of the congregation would visit every family before each quarterly communion. He had a good relationship with his congregation there. Meanwhile, back in Geneva, there, the city had broken into two camps. There were supporters of Pharrell and Calvin. They criticized both the city council and compliant ministers who submitted to the demands of city government. And there was another camp there that was supportive of the city. Long story short, in 1540, the city council voted to invite Calvin back to this ministry in Geneva. He was not interested in returning. <laughs> Farrell, Farrell again, wrote a letter wrote a letter to Calvin called Thundering, <laughs> insisting that Calvin was the minister of the church of Geneva and must return. Farrell even traveled to Strasbourg from his church in Switzerland to plead face-to-face -face with Calvin. Calvin agreed to return. He was in no hurry. Took about a year or two to arrange his affairs. He returned to Geneva in August of 1541. His first Sunday there, he simply picked back up where he left off, <laughs> expositing the word. He was a preacher of the word. Before he returned to Geneva, he also made it clear to the city council that the church order of the city needed revision. Church discipline was filed by the church. It would be handled by church ministers and elders, and if excommunication was in order, the city council would be consulted. Ministers preached every Sunday morning and afternoon, as well as preached early every workday morning. Ministers catechized children every Sunday at noon. Fridays, ministers and others would meet at a gathering called the Congregation to hear a sermon from the minister and discuss preaching. Elders would meet weekly to consider disciplinary matters and regulate and improve the moral life of Geneva. 
He also had deacons to assist with the needs of the poor. Calvin also spent much time at the Academy of Geneva lecturing. A uh, little note here also in um, 1542, Black Death, bubonic plague broke out. Calvin wanted to visit the sick along with most of the other ministers in the city to protect his health. The city council forbid him from visiting the sick. Calvin was, <clears throat> to Calvin, preaching was at the center of his work uh, as a pastor and required that the minister be thoroughly educated. And he's quoted as saying, when I expound the Holy Scripture, I must always make this my rule, that those who hear me may receive profit from the teaching I put forward and be edified into salvation. If I have not that affection, if I do not procure the edification of those who hear me, I am a sacrilege profaning God's word. For church and worship, one of the tasks that Calvin also took up was a reform of public worship. He recognized that most Christians are experience of God was from their knowledge and truth that came from Sunday mornings. He wanted to assure that worship took place according to the word of God. As a pastor and preacher, Calvin frequently led public worship. He prepared service books and liturgies that his churches in Strasbourg and Geneva followed. Promote, promoted the forming of the Genevan Psalter, which grew to include all the Psalms to be sung by the congregation. He had some other important influences that he looked to on that as well. Obviously, his main go-to was the Bible, the Word of God. He sought wisdom from other uh, pastors and ministers as far as worship, and he carefully studied the ancient fathers of the church. Um, this is evident in the title of his Genevan service book titled, The Form of Prayers and Manner of Ministering the Sacraments According to the Use of the Ancient Church. If you look at a lot of those old writers and old ministers, their titles were longer than most books. But again, he was looking, um, he acknowledged the influence of Augustine and, and other uh, early, um, other early um, church leaders. Calvin was also concerned about the environment of worship as well. He purified the cathedral of the Church of Geneva, St. Pierre, where he preached. All religious symbols, including crosses, were removed from the interior of the church. The exterior cross on top of the church was not removed, but when lightning destroyed it, they didn't bother to replace it. While Calvin followed the basic shape of the ancient order of worship, he was determined to remove ceremonies of human invention and to achieve a biblical simplicity. I have a couple of slides here. This kind of shows the order, uh, a typical uh, gathering on Sunday, call to worship, a confession of sin, a scripture reading, singing, psalms, prayer, the sermon, followed up by prayer, singing, and a benediction. And then uh, there's another one here that uh, if it was a communion morning, call to worship, confession of sin, singing. Um, sometimes it included the Ten Commandments, um, more singing, scripture reading, both from the Old and New Testament. Prayer, uh, sermon, another prayer, intercession, singing the Apostles' Creed, and Calvin's preparation of, of those tunes, uh, the Lord's Supper, prayer, singing, and a blessing. So you see some similarities to kind of how we worship today uh, in that. For Calvin, the minister leads the people of God in worship. He speaks for God to the people and for the people of God. Ministers speak for God as they are faithfully preach the word. 
Singing praises to God was also important to Calvin. He recognized the power of music for good and ill. From his Genevan uh, Psalter, we find by experience that it has a sacred and almost incredible power to move hearts in one way or the other. Therefore, we ought to be even more diligent in regulating it in such a way that it shall be useful to us and in no way pernicious. He simplified the use of music in worship in comparison with musical developments of the late medieval period. He eliminated choirs and musical instruments. This seemed to have more of an impact in larger churches. He increased the centrality of music by instituting congregational singing. He saw this as a way to unify the congregation by singing a cappella in unison. Singing was a basic element of worship for Calvin because he saw it as a practically, practically, he saw it as a practically heartfelt way to pray. For Calvin, the doctrine and proper use of the sacraments was also an important issue. 15% of his Genevan catechism was devoted to the sacraments. 15% of his final 1559 edition of the Institutes as well. The sacraments helped strengthen the weak faith as visible signs of God's saving will for his people by drawing the faithful closer to Christ and all his benefits. He believed that the medieval church had come to attribute too much of the sacraments, making them something magical and completely at odds with the biblical religion. As a second generation reformer, he was eager to clarify the doctrine of the sacraments against Rome and to, the, and to unite Protestants. Calvin insists that the, that the Bible teaches that Christ instituted only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He did believe in infant baptism, basing this on the circumcision of infants in the Old Testament. The Lord's Supper insisted that we receive this blood the body and blood of Christ in the supper by faith, and then explains what he means by that. Quote, this is not done only by our believing that he died to liberate, liberate us from death and was raised to procure life for us, but also by our acknowledging that he dwells in us and that we are joined in a union of the same kind as that which members cohere with their head, so that by virtue of this union, we are made partakers of all his benefits. Today, if anything is remembered about John Calvin, it's that he taught the doctrine of predestination. Those who remember this almost invariably see this as a black mark against him. For many, predestination is a cold and gloomy doctrine, leading only to fear and fatalism. But for Calvin and those who followed him, predestination was vital and a comforting doctrine. Calvin did write quite a bit about predestination, not because it was central to his theology, but because this biblical truth was so often attacked in his time. A proper understanding of predestination is necessary for a proper understanding of faith and justification. Quote, that we are justified by faith, we all agree, but the real mercy of God can only be perceived when we learn that faith is the fruit of free adoption and that in point of fact, adoption flows from the eternal election of God. Genevan ministers made it clear that they stood by the doctrine of predestination presented in Calvin's Institutes. They commended the book's reverence and sobriety and declared that it is its own bright witness to the truth. Calvin did not make the doctrine of predestination the centerpiece of his teaching by any means. He makes only a few passing references to it in his 1536 Institute, not a single question in his 1540. 
5 Catechism is devoted to this subject. Still, he believed that the doctrine was important because it was taught in Scripture and because it underscores that salvation is entirely the work and gift of God and that man contributes nothing at all to it. To this point, Calvin agrees with others in the history of the church who had taught the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of predestination is no novelty to Calvin. Calvin believed strongly that this doctrine was clearly taught throughout Scripture, particularly by the Apostle Paul. This doctrine is also taught by the great church father Augustine and by many other medieval theologians, including Thomas Aquinas. The leading reformers, including Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, also certainly taught it. Uh, the church and schools for Calvin, since Emperor Constantine, church and state worked together to create a Christian civilization. Calvin longed for this as well, to create a Christian society, both in the hearts of individuals and the outward forms of all Genevan life. Calvin participated with other ministers and elders in the work of a consistory to reform the moral life of the city. They worked to clean up the problems of drinking, dancing, and sexual immorality in the city outlawed card playing and dancing in the city. Though Calvin was not totally opposed to dancing, but rejected the lascivious forms of it that are taken part in Geneva. I can't imagine what those were at that time. I know what they are now, but I don't know. Uh, they also brought in some laws to reduce the amount of drinking in taverns and it required a Bible to be placed in those taverns as well. As you can imagine, not everybody was happy about this. Many of these laws were not entirely new. Many adopted in the Middle Ages, but there were some more serious punishments tied to them at this point. One Dutch opponent of these new laws said, better the Spanish Inquisition than the Genevan Consistory. In Geneva, Calvin's opponents found a variety of ways to show their disapproval. They named their dogs after him composed songs to criticize the minister, ministers, abbreviated Calvin's name to Cain, and shouted and made rude noises during church services. At that time, many people were required to be in church, and they were there. But they let, let everybody know they weren't happy about it. Repeatedly in Calvin's writings, Calvin indicated that he thought that only one in ten Genevans were really committed to true religion. On his bad days, he would say that not one in a hundred was a true Christian. In 1553, um, one of the things took place in Calvin's life that uh, some still have an issue with, and that was um, uh, the trial and death of Michael Servetus. Um, he was a, a he had written a book in the 1530s which rejecting the Trinity, and he argued that Jesus was not divine and was not the eternal Son of God. As you can imagine, this got him in trouble not only with the Catholic Church, but with the Protestant Church as well. Uh, he was, at one point, he was arrested by the Catholic Church, managed to escape, so they tried him in absentia and found him guilty, and he was sentenced to death. So he was on the run. In... Um, 1553, he arrived in Geneva. Before, before he arrived there, there were a couple times Calvin actually wrote to him in about his heresy, trying to, trying to speak with him, and there was even a meeting set up. Servetus never showed up. So when he showed up in Geneva, uh, obviously he was arrested. Um, the city council at the time that was having some back and forth with Calvin, they initially thought, hey, we can embarrass Calvin with this, but then realized, well, we can't side with Servetus. 
So they kind of dragged it out a while. They wrote to other churches in Europe trying, looking for advice. All the letters came back and said, no, he needs to die for his heresy. So finally, they took, went to trial on October 20th. He was condemned on the 21st, executed, burned at the stake on the 26th. Although Calvin was the chief prosecutor, he and other ministers pled that his death should be by beheading, being much quicker. They even pleaded with Servetus right up to the end for him to repent, but he held his views to the end. And you see the people still are upset and, and hold that against him, but at, at that time, heretics were put to death. That's, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if it was Calvin, the chief prosecutor, or anybody else. That was the faith of Servetus once he was put in chains. Opposition to Calvin also took serious political forms. 1541 to 1555, political support for Calvin waxed and waned. And there you see that interaction between state and church, right? From 1541 to 46, Calvin's supporters were dominant in the government. But from 47 to 53, his supporters and opponents were very evenly divided. During this period, Calvin was worried about being exiled again. His struggles with city leaders continued in 1554, once again over church discipline. One of the leading men of the city was excommunicated, and the question of the church's authority was raised again. Everyone looked to the election of February 1555 to see how the citizens would react to this struggle. In that election, those supporting Calvin and the discipline of the church won overwhelmingly. From that point on until his death in 1564, Calvin's life in Geneva became secure and peaceful. Calvin was also concerned about establishing schools in Geneva uh, at all levels to meet the diverse needs of the city. The great aim for this education first was an educated laity to be able to read the, the Bible, and the other was to train up young pastors and ministers. Ministers who graduated from the academy in Geneva, in Geneva to become ministers often joked that their diploma was a death certificate. They would first become preachers in France, then martyrs. In time, the reform school in Geneva and elsewhere in Europe would achieve their goals. Literacy would become widespread in reformed countries. Calvin, as a counselor, he was a counselor in the widest sense, in all that he did and wrote for the church. His ministry in all parts was designed to direct, encourage, and rebuke Christians according to their needs. Though his theology and commentary, through his theology and commentaries, through his sermons and letters, Calvin, Calvin counseled Christians and churches in Geneva and throughout Europe. One of the foundations of all Calvin's counsel to Christians is their varying needs is a profound teaching on providence. All his advice and direction would be to faith, hope, and love, whether to practice or intent, uh, whether to patience or intense action, rest at least in part of his understanding of God's provincial, pro, provincial care for his people. His teaching on providence can be found especially in his institutes and in his commentaries. Early editions of the institutes, Calvin discussed providence and predestination together. As God governs all things by his will, providence, so he practically governs the salvation of his elect, predestination. In his 1559 institute, he separated the two. After reminding his readers that the great assurance of the saints in the Bible, in the face of their troubles, he asked, how is it that their security remains unshaken while the world appears to be revolving at random? Because, but because they know that the Lord is everywhere at work 
and because they trust that this work is beneficial to them. More importantly for the believer, Calvin stresses that the Lord's work is always for the welfare of his people. Moreover, the principal purpose of the biblical histories is to teach us that the Lord is carefully defends the ways of the saints, that they may not even dash their foot against a stone. Calvin was drawn to the Psalms. He was a big fan of the Psalms, you could say. In 1557, he published a large commentary on the Psalms. He also preached the entire book of Psalms, off and on from 1545 to 1560. Only for Psalms did he break from his pattern of preaching only from the New Testament on Sundays. He began lecturing to the, the schoolboys at the academy on the Psalms in 1552. He lectured and preached on the Psalms to the Friday gathering of ministers from 55 to 59. Calvin was drawn to the Psalms, as he makes clear in the preface to the commentary, because of his strong identification with the emotions of David expressed in these poems. He believed that the value of these poems was not just for himself, but for all Christians. The Psalms teach all that we know, all, excuse me, the Psalms teach all to know and honor God. There is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God or in which we are more powerfully stirred up to the performance of this religious exercise. In particular for Calvin, the Psalms teach a vital lesson that the Christian will suffer for the Lord in this life. They will principally teach and train us to bear the cross. Prayer was also another great matter for Calvin. He stresses the importance of prayer in his, his, his commentaries and in his 1559 institute. In fact, in his institutes, he wrote a, a chapter on prayer that is a classic exposition of the biblical teaching on prayer. In that one chapter, he gives more space to prayer than to predestination in the institutes. The fact that should surely cause some to reconsider easy stereotype of Calvin's religion. He was also a prolific letter writer. During his ministry's ministry, he wrote over 1,200 letters to friends, acquaintances, churches, even strangers. Letters to the sick and grieving those with theological questions. Uh, in, in, excuse me. One of his letters, he wrote to five young men who were imprisoned for their faith in Lyons, France in 1553. Uh, they were traveling from Switzerland to visit. They were denounced as Protestants and were sent to prison. So, um, to read part of his letter that he sent to these five. We hope, come what may, that God of his goodness will give you a happy, will give you a happy issue to your captivity so that we shall have reason to rejoice. You see, you see to what he has called you. Doubt not. Therefore, and according to, according as he employs you, he will give you strength to fulfill his work for he has promised this, and we know by experience that he has never failed those who allow themselves to be governed by him. Even now you have proof of this in yourselves, for he has shown by his power, by giving you such constancy in withstanding this first assault. Be confident, therefore, that he will not leave the work of his hand imperfect. You know that scripture sets before us to encourage us to fight for the cause of the Son of God. Meditate upon what you have both heard and seen on this head as to put it to practice. So here you can kind of see his 
his philosophy on providence and how many times he mentions the Lord in this letter to these five, five men. Uh, he wrote to him again in 1553 in March, again in May in 1553, just before their death. Uh, those five ultimately uh, went to their death singing psalms. And he also wrote to uh, many troubled churches letters of encouragement. <clears throat> Excuse me. John Calvin poured his fruit of his experience as a pastor and student of the Word of God into his final edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, published in 1559. Calvin believed that at last the great work had both had the form and the content that he had long sought. The first edition had been published in 1536 when Calvin was only 26 years old. It had been intended to be a brief introduction to the foundational truths of Christianity. That first edition had only six chapters on law, faith, prayer, sacraments, and the five false sacraments of the Roman church and Christian freedom of the church and state. His first revision was published in 1539, nearly tripling the length of the work. Another revision appeared in 1543, fourth edition in 1550. The final form in 1559, much of the work continued to have positive exposition on Christian truth, but much of it had been added, which Calvin analyzed and critiqued the theological errors of his day. And, uh, you know, he started with six chapters, and there's like a thousand pages in here now. Uh, book one of the Institutes, Calvin examines the sources of our knowledge of God, as well as the nature of God, also discusses God's act of creation, specifically on human beings and his image and the providential rule over his creation. Book two, he discusses first the fall of man into sin, the effect of sin, especially on human beings and on the need for Christ. Then Calvin turns to the character of the law, similarities and differences between the Old and New Testament, finally examines the person of Christ and his saving work. Book three, Calvin briefly describes that the spirit, briefly looks at the spirit, then he turns to the spirit's great gift of the elect, namely faith. He writes of the character of faith, the fruit of faith and sanctification and justification, the exercise of faith and prayer, the source of faith and predestination, and finally, the end of faith in the final resurrection. Book four, he discusses the eternal means that God uses to save and preserve his people. First means is the church, which Calvin examines in terms of its character, its ministry and government, and its power. Then he turns to the sacraments as a means God uses to build up his people, and finally look at the state and its role as a means in the hand of God to preserve his people. Calvin's Institutes on the Christian Religion is undoubtedly a great work of theology and a demonstration that Calvin is one of the great theologians in the history of the church. But even more than the Institutes demonstrate that Calvin is always a pastor stressing the essential elements of true religion. The knowledge of God and the work of Christ are fundamental to all that he preached and taught. Calvin died peacefully on Saturday, May 27, 1564 at 8 p.m. Calvin's health was never very good in the latter part of his life. He was overworked and certainly his overwork had certainly contributed to his physical decline. He had worked with great energy, faithfulness, and productivity throughout his life. Much of the work was done in great haste and under great pressure. In 1559, it was evident that his health was suffering due to the stress, strain, and the pace he kept. Bouts of malaria-like fever, tuberculosis, ulcerated veins, kidney stones, gout, and a whole list of other 
issues. Medical wasn't, medicine wasn't, you know, what it was back then, right? Uh, on May 2nd, Calvin, knowing that his death was near, wrote to his old friend, William Farrell. In fact, Farrell, who had insisted that Calvin join him in his work of reforming the church in Geneva in 1538 and brought Calvin into his the official ministry, received one of Calvin's last letters. Calvin wrote, I draw my breath with difficulty, and every moment I am in expectation of breathing my last. It is enough that I live and die for Christ, who is to all his followers again in life and in death. Although Calvin urged Farrell not to travel and visit, Farrell, 75 and in weak health, made the journey for a personal goodbye. At, the, at his request, he was buried in an unmarked grave. In one of his last commentaries he wrote, he commented on the death and burial of Moses. It's good that famous men should be buried in unmarked graves. This conviction guided his own veneration of the dead and wanted no pilgrimages to his grave. He had lived to make Christians, not Calvinists. He did perhaps written his own best appetite in his institutes. We may patiently pass through this life in afflictions, hunger, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other disagreeable circumstances contended with this single assurance that our king will never desert us, but will give what we need until having finished our warfare, we shall be called to the triumph. So Calvin, what he's, he's most um, associated with, the five points of Calvinism. Now, th these were formulated at a later time by his followers as a main rebuttal and defense against a protest brought forth by followers of Jacob Arminius. This protest uh, by the followers of Arminius challenged many of the reforms and teaching of Calvin and other reformers. The Synod at Dort convened and ultimately sided with the reformers rejecting the Arminians' protest. Among the reformers, Calvin particularly stands uh, out for his emphasis on the Holy Spirit in the everyday life of the church. Calvin articulated a theology in which Christians should find genuine assurance in salvation. Calvin's legacy endures to this day, particularly in the Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed traditions, as well as a variety of other reform groups. So as kind of wrap up here, um, I think we've all heard this tulip. It, uh, this acrostic, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Um, some of us like to call it the doctrines um, as opposed to, to TULIP. Now, what's interesting is I tried to do some research to find out when this is actually put into practice. This, and, and the best I can find is, I think, 1905. So TULIP was fairly late as far as an acrostic uh, describing the, these, um, these beliefs or these doctrines that, uh, that the reform talks about today. So, you know, total depravity. Uh, because of the fall, man has a natural condition apart from any work of grace, is guilty before God, hostile to God and good, inclined only toward evil continually, spiritually dead, unable to save himself. Sin has no affected, sin has so affected every part of man's mind, will, emotions that he cannot and will not by nature turn from sin and believe in Christ to be saved. Rather, he exercises will and rebellion against God in pursuit of sin. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
who can understand it. Various other um, scriptures as well, Genesis 2, 15 to 17, 6, 5, Psalm 51, 5, John 6, 44, Romans 3, 10 to 18, these all speak of his gravity. Unconditional election. Election refers to God's choosing of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world. This choice is unconditional in that it is not based on any merit in the sinner or any foreseen response from the sinner, but rests only in the sovereign wisdom and good pleasure of God. Repentance and faith are a result of election, not the cause of election. Apart from the election of grace, none would be saved, for none would seek after God. Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those from whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Other scriptures that speak to this, John 10, 26, Acts 11, 18, 13, 48. Acts 9, 10 to 21, Ephesians 1, 4 to 11, and of course, Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. Limited atonement or definite or particular redemption. Doctrine of limited atonement, perhaps better defined, as definite atonement or particular redemption, addresses the extent of Christ's atoning work on the cross. It answers the question, for whom did Christ die? More specifically, it grapples with the question of what Christ's death actually accomplished. Did it merely make salvation possible for those who might believe, or did his death actually accomplish and secure the salvation of his elect? The scriptures teach that Christ's death actually achieved the salvation for those for whom he died. Christ's death is not general, but particular and definite in its aim. Christ died for the elect. He died for his bride, the church. Matthew 1.21, she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Isaiah 53, 11 to 12, Mark 10, 45, John 10, 11 to 30, Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 2, 24, some of the other scriptures that speak to this. Irresistible grace, the eye and tulip. Because man is spiritually dead in sin, only a sovereign work of God can overcome man's rebellion against God and bring him to faith in Christ. Irresistible grace refers to that special inward work of God in the Holy Spirit, whereby the sinner is made spiritually alive and given the gifts of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's sovereign work of grace can and will overcome all resistance when he wills to draw his elect to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. John 1, 12 to 13, but to all whom did he receive, excuse me, but to all whom did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. John 3, 1 through 8, John 6.37, John 40, uh, 6.44, 64-65, uh, Acts 16.14, Romans 8.28-30, and some other scriptures all speak to this as well. And persevere, persevere, excuse me, I need some water. Perseverance of the saints. I think that's my favorite one of all those up there. To all those chosen by God before time, redeemed by Christ, 
effectively called by God to faith in Christ and given new life in the spirit, we will be finally saved. This is not simply a matter of eternal security, though it includes that. Scripture teaches that the saints will be kept in preserving faith and in obedience of faith by the power of God to that end. The fruits of conversion will be evident in their lives, though not without remaining sin. John 10, 26 to 30. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Mark 13, 13, Romans 8, 13, Romans 28 to 30, Romans 8, 35 to 39, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and a whole host of other scriptures speak to the perseverance of the saints. And as I wrap up here, I'd like to quote from James Montgomery Boyce's book on the doctrines of grace, which is, is another name for TULIP. Although these doctrines constitute the purest expression of Calvinism, Calvin did not invent them, nor were they characteristic of this thought alone during the Reformation period. These truths are contained in the Old Testament Psalms. They were taught by Jesus, even to his enemies, as recorded in John 6 and 10 and elsewhere. The Apostle Paul confirmed them in his letters to the Romans, the Ephesians, and others. St. Augustine argued for the same truths over against the denials of Plagius. Martin Luther, Martin Luther was in many ways a Calvinist. So were Ulrich uh, Zwingli, William Tyndale. For this reason, it is perhaps more accurate to describe the theology as reformational rather than Calvinist. In short, the doctrines known as Calvinisms did not emerge late in church history, but find their origins in the teachings of Jesus, which has been preserved throughout the church in many periods and which will always be the characteristic of the church at its greatest periods of faith and expansion. It follows from this that the evangelical church will again see great days when these truths are widely and fearlessly proclaimed. So I was trying to think at that point, how to wrap this up, kind of put some application to it. And I was talking to my daughter a few days ago, and um, she said a couple of things that, it, you know, that's spot on. Um, she was having a discussion with some other believers, uh, her and her husband, and about predestination, providence of God, God's sovereignty. And, and there was just such a joy coming out of my daughter as she was expressing these to these other, you know, believers that basically have never heard this before. You know, they've been in church their whole life and through, you know, Christian school, whatever it is, but never heard some of these things taught or explained in this way. And, and she said there's just such a peace knowing that, you know, perseverance of the saints. If you're his, you're his. Doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we're not going to sin, but there just gives you a peace at knowing that he's in control. As Phil said, Jenny and I have been through a number of things. And you can look back at it and you can see God's hand in every, all of it to get us to where we are today. You know, there, there's nothing that's chance, doesn't happen for a reason. 
And I think that's what we can take away from the reformers that, you know, they brought out in their teachings. They, and what it was, it was scripture. You know, for years there was this dark time where it was just, you know, the Catholic Church that controlled everything. We'll decide what you're going to do, what you're going to hear, what you're, you know. And that's not why there was such resistance to that. That's why you saw many of the reformers die. You saw, you know, that they just went to the grave, but they went to the grave singing the Psalms like the five young men in lions. They knew the truth. They knew their destination once they took their final breath at that point. And I think that's what gives us all believers that peace, knowing that he's in charge, doesn't mean life's going to be hard, doesn't mean life's going to have challenges, but we know the ultimate outcome. And if you know the word, you know how this ends. Amen. Ends in victory for us with him. Father, thank you for this, this day and this opportunity to not just share about John Calvin, but what made him tick, and it was the word. He, he was a student of the word. He, he was a preacher of the word. He was a counselor and looked to make the Bible plain and, and simple for the church. We know that, you know, the, the Bible can be so simple a child can understand it, but then there's so much depth in there that we can spend years studying it. But men like Calvin and, and Luther and others that we've heard about poured their heart and soul into that and into their people trying to show what the Word teaches, what the Word tells us, and ultimately tells us that Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, is in charge of all of it. So we pray as we, as we go from here this week that we, we look, look to him in all we do. I, I heard a sermon a week ago where the pastor brought up, you know, we should be, you know, the light of Christ and he used the analogy of punching holes in the darkness. And we know this world's a dark world at this point and so much going on, not just in our country, but in the world. But so, you know, I pray that we're light and that as we go about our day that we shine as a light and we're punching holes in the darkness, leaning on your word as our guide. So again, thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name, amen.